It is a uh, humbling thing to have such uh, attention and support and love uh, granted, and I'm just overwhelmed with uh, the, the kindness of the Lord through RGC, through all you guys, uh, and I pray for all of what has been already said, uh, for myself and my ministry here, for Sarah and I and our marriage and our uh, raising of our kids among you, with you, uh, hopefully not against you. (laughs) And um, we look forward, we really do, we look forward to uh, a lot of time here and a lot of years here. So... With that, um, if you are in 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which we will cover this morning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of man we prove to be among you, for your sake. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, feed your people from on high. Grant them honey out of the rock. Give them your, give them your word. Impart truth to them. And may the unfolding of your word give light. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, as you have already guessed by uh, our reading and by the bulletin, we're going to start a series in 1 Thessalonians this morning. The reason why I wanted to teach through 1 Thessalonians are are multifaceted, um, but there are some, a few reasons I want to just point out at the outset of this book and at the outset of this sermon. Even though Thessalonians uh, has been separated from us by distance and by over 2,000 years, the church faces the same issues now as it did then. And particularly, RGC has some similarities with the church in Thessalonica. They are, or they were, a young church that considered that experienced a considerable degree of affliction. And Paul has appropriate words to this young church, words to assure them, words to give them confidence for the newfound spiritual life, that despite their affliction, they have the true gospel. They have the true gospel. They possess true gospel virtues, true Christian virtues, and that they truly are looking forward to that blessed hope our hope of glory, Christ's return. And he puts before them then what they should remember and never forget. A young church 
being told to major on the majors. Don't forget these timeless truths, Paul says. They're a church born out of affliction. As Paul was looking in his rearview mirror, leaving Thessalonica, the city was in an uproar. Jewish mob had incited a violent riot, and they were even dragging Christians out into the streets, ready to do what they will with them. And so this little church was young, saw trouble. Every church sees trouble. And RGC is young. And scandal, trouble, affliction will hit every church. Every church. And so the connection between the Thessalonians and us is is fairly simple. And especially in these opening verses, his opening greeting, don't forget these important things, Thessalonians. And I would say we need to make Paul's words our own this morning. RGC, don't forget these words. These are very precious and reassuring words for us. So what are these words? Well, first off, he tells the Thessalonians that the church abides in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. The church dwells, lives, and exists in God. Apart from any earthly location or locale, the church lives in God the Father and his Son, the Messiah. He says this in his opening greeting to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No such greeting does Paul write to any other church. No such greeting. He writes to many saints in Ephesus and Rome and Corinth and Colossae that they're maybe in Christ or that they have faith in Christ or that they're the church in a certain city. But never does he phrase it this way when he says to the church of the city, Thessalonians, in God the Father. From the outset, he wants them to know you live and move and have your breath in God. And any affliction you might actually see, experience, any riots, any Molotov cocktails, that actually is not a threat to your spiritual security in God the Father and in His Son. Yes, the Thessalonians meet, they congregate in Thessalonica, but in a far more significant way, they dwell on high with God, where no trouble can touch them. No riot, no angry Jewish unbelieving mob can actually threaten them. I alluded to it already, but if you would like to go over to Acts 17, just get a little hint of what happened here. Paul is on his second missionary trip, and he's, he, this is actually not a smooth sailing trip. Uh, prior to Thessalonica, he's in Philippi. And he's arrested in Philippi, and he's imprisoned. He gets out, and he continues on his trip, and he comes to Thessalonica. And verse 2 picks it up, and Paul went in, Acts 17, verse 2, as was his occasion, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded 
and join Paul and Silas, who is Silvanus, by the way. Silas is Silvanus. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, most likely Gentile leading women, a bunch of devout Greeks who were probably um, proselytes to some sort of Judaism of the day. Verse 5 picks it up. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, setting the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Interesting. They're rioting. They're forming a mob, and the Christians are turning the world upside down. Verse 7, Jason has received, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so from there, Paul goes on. Paul was there maybe a month, maybe, maybe two months. And he's leaving because of this mob, and he sees the fruit early on, within weeks. Imagine that. Imagine getting into town somewhere, and then within a couple weeks, dozens, hundreds of people have come to Christ. You know, a great revival, really. And Paul, only there for a few weeks, he's leaving town, and the disaster's happening behind him. Any self-respecting missionary pastor would say, man, what's going to happen? You know? As he says to the Thessalonians later, like, we shared our life and gospel with you. So Paul is intimately concerned for them, and he writes to them, remember, you're not just in Thessalonica. You're in God the Father. Psalm 125 says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved and abides forever. The Christian remains secure, steadfast, and immovable in Christ. It'd be easier for Heart Mountain to tumble down into nothing than the Christian to be removed from his place in God's hand. That's how secure you are in Christ, protected from all sorts of earthly trouble, affliction, Scandal, tribulation. We need to remember this, that yes, one, we don't walk alone. We exist in a church. We exist in a congregation. We're not going about this all alone. And two, we are firmly established. And no one can take us out of God's hand. That is a word we need to remember. Secondly, we need to remember that Christian virtues should elicit our gratitude to God. Christian virtues should elicit our gratitude to God. When we see Christian virtues such as faith, hope, and love in one another and in ourselves, we should be grateful. That sounds like a no-brainer. But often, and unfortunately, we are much more... Uh, searching for other things. But Paul says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, 
constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is happy. He's glad to see Christians who have faith, who love one another, and who have hope. The three cardinal virtues of Christianity. That's what Paul's thankful for. When he thinks of the Thessalonians, that's what he thinks about. Wouldn't that be amazing? When someone thinks of Al and they think of love for the brother. Or someone's faith. Or wow, that person's hope is truly in the second coming. That, those are irreplaceable. We are a Reformed Baptist church. We have our doctrinal heritage. And we are not ashamed at all of what we think the Scriptures teach. But what does is, what is Paul say? What does, excuse me, Jesus say to the church in Ephesus? Why am I rebuking you, Ephesus? You have forgotten your first love. You actually were good on a lot of levels. You were very talented. But most importantly, you have forgot your first love. So Paul says, it is no small thing. It is no small thing that a bunch of selfish, hate and giving in hate sinners, as Titus 3 calls us, begin to love one another, begin to have faith in God, and share that faith and begin to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ's coming for in that future life that they will live eternally in. Those are not small things. Not small things at all. What does he exactly mean by work of faith? Probably tied to the Thessalonians' fruit in evangelism. 1 Thessalonians 1.8 says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say everything. So fruitful are they in their evangelism, and you can see the parallel there. The word of the Lord sounded forth. Your faith has gone forth. So, so fruitful are this, is the word of the Lord going from Thessalonica. Paul needs not say anything to them or about them of that. Imagine someone saying, you are so good at evangelism, I got nothing to say. I, I want that kind of commendation. Not only is he talking about, most likely, their, their work of faith, their, their sharing their faith, but also their living trustingly in the Lord. It is an aroma of life from Christian to Christian to see another Christian live trustingly in the Lord especially knowing that they have affliction in their life. They have trouble in their life. It is no small thing. And the Thessalonians were known throughout all of Macedonia, that Mediterranean northern basin there. Paul says, you're good. I ain't got to worry about you. Which is good for Paul, because he's got plenty of other to worry about. But the Thessalonians were exemplary in that way. 
They shared their faith and they walked in the Lord, living out their faith in such a way that the Apostle Paul says, you're you're good. You're doing great. You're doing great. Just continue to excel. He also says that they are known for, and he thinks of them because of their labor of love. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You have concerning brotherly love. Now, now it's possible because this phrasing happens in 1 Corinthians that um, the Thessalonians were wondering, hey, are we loving one another enough? Is our love genuine? Is it right? And so he says, now concerning, which is sometimes Paul's way of bringing up, hey, this is what I'm going to address because you've already inquired about it. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For that indeed, it continues, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. They are so good at loving one another and Paul says, again, A+, plus, high marks. Don't got to worry about it. Whew, man, I'll, I'll worry about Corinth. I'll worry about like Colossae and the heresy there. I don't have to worry about you Thessalonians. You're doing so well. And 2 Thessalonians 1.3, in an even a more intense way, he says, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So not only did they receive that love by the Spirit and are growing in that, they are increasing in that. And it says in 2 Thess 1.3, the love of every one of you for one another. There's not just a few like good lovers in Thessalonica. Every one of them was really good at loving one another. And every one of them was good at loving the other one back. The reciprocity was completely of the Spirit. That they would love one another and love in return. You know, if you want to get bitter at God or with one another or in the church, all you have to do is to be kind with one another and expect the same in return. And that bitterness will plant, root, grow, and its thorns will be in your heart for a while. But that's not biblical love. Biblical love is, I'll love you expecting nothing else back. I'll love you even though you've stabbed me in the back. I'll love you. I will love you. I will love you because that is what the Spirit of the Lord, Christ's resurrected spiritual presence is in me doing, compelling me to do. And Paul says, you're good. You're good. Imagine, and I will say, on our second trip, I think here, I think it was our second trip in October. Um, it was a great trip. You were kind to my preaching and my kids and my wife, and things were going fine. What was really impressive was Gloria and Dave's birthday Wednesday night. That is where we saw you loving one another. 
you were out of church, you know, you didn't have your like church thing doing, going on. And we just saw genuine love. I'm not saying like it was peaches from that day on and, you know, and forth. If it was, since I'm here, it won't. <laughs> like, I'll screw that up. But we saw genuine love. And that was attractive to myself. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't want to go somewhere where a bunch of people hate each other. <laughs> I want to go where people are already loving one another. I want to go where it's easy to shepherd, you know, relatively speaking. But that was, that was genuine love, and, and that makes an impact on people. So Paul is thinking of their faith. He's thinking of their love, and it is a work of faith. It is laborious to love one another. It's not easy, you know, not easy. But they were so good at this, but they had nothing, no um, condemnation from Paul. Only commendation. But also in this triad of virtues, he mentions their hope. And no doubt, this is their hope of the second coming. It's, it's, it's threaded throughout the letter, not only in this letter, but in the second letter, Second Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were known for living for the life to come. They weren't worried all that much about their present life. They knew when Christ returned, he's their life. When he returns, their life will be fully realized. They lived for the age to come. They loved Christ's appearing. They loved to see their husband come back to them and bring them home. And they endured affliction for that. And it says endured. Some of your translations might say steadfastness of hope. Or might say endurance of hope. But they endured. And there was a world of difference between waiting or having patience and endurance. You can you can wait for your popcorn to be done popping in the microwave. That's patience. Pop, two minutes. Endurance, ice bath, two minutes, can't get out, and you endure the pain. One's painful and waiting, you're waiting under duress, under stress, under affliction, and you're waiting and waiting. The other one is just like, oh, I'm just waiting for the light to turn green. Way different. And they didn't just wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. They endured under affliction. They didn't veer off course because the affliction was causing them to rethink their salvation, rethink their conversion. No, they stayed the course and they continued hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that hope is not just a wish by any means. It is a confident expectation. He's coming back and he will rescue me from this present, earthly, dark world, and he will bring me home to him. And they were good at that. I mean, from the inception of their church, they saw affliction. 
from the very inception, they saw affliction. And they knew, but this isn't it. This is not the sum and substance of my life. The totality of my life and my real life is coming. And it's not here yet. And when it does come, when Christ does come, this life will feel just like a dream. Just a brief vapor. So they endured. And they, and they pressed on. They kept their eyes fixed on Christ. And they thought, that life, the eternal life, fully realized without sin, without sorrow, without affliction, without Jewish violent mobs, that life, that's my life. Not now. Not the, not the heartache now. Not the pain now. So faith, hope, and love, these are clear marks of conversion. And the, the Spirit works and He goes as the wind goes invisibly, but you do know that wherever He goes and He effectually calls to Himself people, there are marks of His influence. People believe in Christ. People hope in Christ's future coming. People love one another. The Spirit's works are invisible. But His fingerprints, as you might say, are not. And the Thessalonians are excelling in this. And, and this is what I would pray we would excel in. Above all things. Not only knowing that we are in God the Father, having that security, but that we also champion above all things faith, love, and hope. And if our desire is to be molded into Christ's image, we should not have a problem majoring on that. Faith, hope, and love are cardinal virtues with wit, without which we cannot say we are being conforming to Christ's image. If I am not worried about faith, hope, and love, I will not give thanks to that in myself or if I see that in you. But if I understand that I have been predestined, called, and saved so that I'm more and more transformed into God's Son's image, then I will gladly give praise and thanks to God when I see that in myself and when I see that in you. That's the end goal. Being transformed into God's image is more and more the goal. And you cannot be transformed into Christ's image without faith, without love, and without hope. Oh, I can praise for a lot of things. I can give thanks for a lot of things. But it's all about being sanctified and transformed into the Son of God. That is why we were predestined in the very first place. And if I care about that, then I care about the faith I see in you, the hope I see, the love I see, and conversely, in myself. The third word Paul has for the Thessalonians here is not only that they would know they're secure in God the Father, not only that he's grateful for their triad of virtues, but also 
He wants them to know that the, their certainty of God's election derives from the power of the gospel, not themselves. We all have asked the question, I don't know if I'm elect. I don't know if I'm saved. How do I, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And, and sometimes we are placed in others' lives where we feel like we know that answer more sure than the person asking it. I'm sure there are many in this room who say, I, this person always asks me, they don't know if they're saved or not. I'm confident they are, but I don't know why they aren't. That's not unusual. But the confidence we have would not be because anything in ourselves, the strength of our love for one another, the strength of our faith or the strength of our hope, those reasons are not the basis for our confidence in God's election. What does he say in verse 4 and 5? Knowing, or for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So unless the Thessalonians are tempted to think, I don't know if I'm on the right track because ever since the start of this thing, we've been afflicted. I don't know if I'm actually saved or not. I don't know if I'm actually elect or not. And pain does that. Pain has a tendency to cause us to doubt. Is this really the right thing, you know? And I have a crazy friend who does do ice baths. And I tried. And I'm like, you're crazy. I can't do that for more than a minute. And I think because my heart started beating weird. <laughs> but regardless, pain makes us double check, make, rethink. Is this the right course of action? And Paul says, I want you to know that you're loved by God and that he's chosen you. And you can base this on not the virtues of faith, hope, and love, even though those are clear signs of conversion or can be clear signs of conversion. No, I actually want you to base your election on how the gospel came to you. I want you to base your election and have your confidence not on anything you have in yourself, but how did the gospel come? What was attendant with the gospel? What came with it? And he says it did not come in word only. The gospel is not a matter of words only. If it was a matter of words only, then salvation would be a matter of education or maybe cognitive to, cognitively asserting the right doctrines in order. But that's not conversion. Conversion is with the power and spirit and in full assurance or conviction. So he says, you need to know, you can go to bed at night, you can rest with that mob outside, you can rest in your home knowing you're elect because of the power and efficacy of the gospel. And so he says, it didn't come in word only, it comes in power. Not words alone, but in power. And not power to destroy, but to, to build up. The power of the gospel unto salvation is not to destroy or is not destructive. It's actually vivifying. It's actually life-giving and actually constructs the soul back into the image of the Son. That's the power of the gospel. Not to tear down, but to build up anew again.
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. We were in a dungeon. Many of us, some of us still in this room, maybe. We were in a dungeon, and not just in a dungeon, we were chained in a dungeon. And we were miserable. We were miserable prior to Christ. And the power of the gospel destroys that and brings light and life and liberty to the soul to fly again to Christ. That's the power. But the power is not an impersonal force. But the power comes with the Spirit. Paul would say to the Corinthians, from where he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Acts 1a, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. So the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit is a powerful ministry. And it is a spiritual ministry. It's not as if the the words of the gospel comes and they're just impersonal. Like a lightning storm charging up the night sky. No, they're they're personal because they come with a very presence of the Spirit himself. The gospel is powerful unto salvation because God the Spirit comes with the gospel. So you could say, when you could recall, I remember when that person was sharing with me the gospel. I heard that person's voice. I heard the minister's voice. But deeper and more mysteriously, I heard a different voice. I heard the voice of God calling, speaking, convicting. That's how the gospel comes. It doesn't come in word only or just in impersonal force or power. But the Holy Spirit himself comes in the word and through the word, converting, pointing people to Christ. That's how the gospel is effective. Because it's not just a message, it is the Spirit of God converting people powerfully against their initial will to implant grace and love and hope and faith in that person. Paul also says the gospel not only comes with power and with the Spirit, but in the ESV it says with full conviction. Other translations might say full assurance, and that might be more accurate. I don't think full conviction is the best rendering. The idea here is that the The gospel comes in fullness of divine work. It's not just that it comes in conviction, although that is true. It's not just that it brings assurance, although that that is true. It comes in the full reality of the Spirit's work 
to make a soul anew into the image of God. One scholar says Paul uses this word linguistically, speaking of the great riches of the divine work in the present life of Christianity. So when the gospel comes in in power and in the spirit and in fullness, they're not cheated. There's nothing that they heard that someone else heard more of. No, the whole gospel came to the Thessalonians in divine fullness, in full assurance that they really did get the real thing. They weren't cheated. They didn't get half a gospel and then needed some like a crazy asceticism or whatever to like get the full thing. No. They got the full message and the, the full Spirit of God to fully convict them, fully transform them, and fully root them in the Lord. So that, as Paul would say to the Colossians, you're complete. You are complete. Now, it is, it is easier to believe that the gospel comes in such powerful ways when Pentecost happens. Or when something like the Thessalonians experience. Or uh, first and second great awakening movements happen. Or or various revivals in, in New York or in Wales or wherever it may be. The gospel not only comes in power and with the spirit and with fullness in great revivals. But any time the gospel is proclaimed. It can be at the dinner table after dinner. As two parents just want to read the Bible to their kids. It could be cold evangelism. And you walk up to someone you don't even know and you share the gospel with them. It could be one person. It could be a thousand people. But either way, this is how the gospel comes always. With fullness and with the very personal presence of the Spirit. And Paul says, this is what you base your election on. You don't base your election on a good Wednesday Bible study. You don't base your election on a good sermon or your spiritual disciplines or what you know or how much of the LBC you have memorized. No, you base your election on nothing in you and everything outside of you. And that is what comes with the gospel. The power to bring the soul to life again by the Spirit's work in full work, that's why we can say, I know I am elect. Not because I believed and I've walked a long time with the Lord. Or not because this one Christian mega speaker is who I've been following and I have all his podcasts down. No. And, and I know that's kind of trite, but it happens all the time. Even when Ravi Zacharias went off after his death and we found out everything that was going on in that man's life, people started wondering, well, he was so impactful in my life. What does that mean about my life? It's real. None of that matters. None of that matters. God would not sanction your eternal security in such frivolous, sinful men, but only the gospel itself. So he wants them to know, yes, 
You've had a hard go, Thessalonians. But I want to remind you, God loves you. God loves you. He's loved you from the foundation of the world. And you can base that on on how God decides to bring the gospel to your heart. And then lastly, he says, I got one last word, guys. And and this is going to be taken up more in chapter 2, so I'm not going to touch on it very long here. But he says, the the marks of a genuine minister of God or messenger of God should be observable. He says at the end of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And and that last that last phrase matters, for your sake. We, we're doing this all for your sake. You don't serve us, Thessalonians. We are servants for you and for your eternal good. But he says, because there, there are attacks. There are attacks about Paul's apostolic credentials. That happens in 2 Corinthians, and there's a little bit here in 1 Thessalonians. And he says, hey, you know what kind of men we are. We were around you. I was doing my vocation with you and among you, sharing the gospel with you for some weeks. You know, not just a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of guy. Like, I didn't just come in, preach, and leave. No, we wanted to come, and should that mob not have started, we would have stayed there. But we, you know what kind of men we are. Paul would say to Thessalonians, like, we've shared our gospel and even our lives with you. You are our crown and glory and our joy. Very personal, very pastoral words in here for the Thessalonians. But this is what he wants them to know because they're all fa- there are false ones out there. Evidences for a genuine minister should be observable. Now, Pastor Don already read a bunch from Titus and 1 Timothy. But this is what I want you to really understand the minister of God, it's not just that his gifting matters because more importantly, his life matters. And you can judge me, Don, any future elder based on what the Lord has done in that person's life. And so Paul says, examine us. Examine me. You know what kind of man we are. We We haven't toyed around. We've been true through and through. And so, that's the case for today as well. Anybody who has, who, who is under a pastor needs to understand that that pastor lives and falls before Christ himself, first and foremost. But should be open to correction and examination from the congregation. And you know what? If I had skeletons in my closet, I wouldn't say these things. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I can sit here and say, you know me. You know Don. And any other minister, you need to know well enough to say, yep, he's the real deal. You know, he's got flaws. He's sinful, no doubt about it. But he is not living in licentiousness or these sinful habits or whatsoever. Of course, not only is that the case for Paul's apostolic position over the Thessalonians and for ministers over the congregation, but for any Christian. Any Christian should concern themselves first and foremost with faith 
in Christ, love for one another, and hope in the second coming. Those three virtues, faith, labor, excuse me, faith, love, and hope, those are it. That's the bottom line. So, there's a lot of good stuff in the Thessalonian letter here. I've been asked from time to time, not only before we got here, uh, but also since we've been here, like, hey, you know, what do you think you're going to bring? What kind of direction and things like that? And I'm like, I just want to shepherd. I got no agenda. If I did, this is the agenda. We should be about faith, love, and hope. We should be about the power of the gospel for salvation, and we should be about living, abiding, resting in God the Father and His Son, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are supremely good. Would you take the words of this message, would you take your scripture, write it in our hearts and cause it to sink down so that we will not go astray, that we will continue to run to you. And I truly pray, Lord, of all things, may Redeeming Grace Church be a church of love, of loving one another, even loving our enemies. May we be a church of faith, walking trustingly in you, relying on you, showing the world the goodness found in Christ. And may we be about the next life, not our lives now, the second coming and life eternal. Impress that upon our hearts, just as you have done so for me personally, Lord. I pray this in your Son's precious and powerful name. Amen.